If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're pleased to bring you a special summer offer from our sister magazines. You can try three issues of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed for just £5. That's a saving of up to 72% off the shop price. Plus, you'll receive free UK delivery on each issue. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit our official online store, buysubscriptions.com slash podcast 2021. If you're based in the US, you also won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast 2021. Please be aware that both these offers end on the 31st of August 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The history of land ownership in England is a contested one. A story of hard-fought battles over access to landscapes and resources, and debates over whether they should belong to the many or be accessed only by a privileged few. It's a history that writer Nick Hayes looks at in the book of Trespass, which has just come out in paperback. I put a call into Nick on his houseboat to find out more. Thanks very much for joining me today, Nick. Thanks so much for having us. I appreciate it. Let's talk about your book, Book of Trespass. So it's a journey through stories of land possession, trespass, enclosure, dispossession, the public right to land, really. So what first drew you to this subject? What was it that intrigued you about the idea of trespass and its history? Um, well, the, the book begins with a sort of lesser known story about the Kinder Trespass, like the, the, the largest, most famous trespass in England. Uh, it starts with a guy that was just going for a walk anyway, uh, just running into this kind of angsty, political, uh, aggressive battle between uh, 400 kids from the surrounding, you know, Manchester, Sheffield, Derby, the, the Duke of Devonshire's uh, gamekeepers. I, I was drawn to that 
that story because that kind of felt like me. Uh, I was trespassing from an early age as someone that really didn't know the political implications, uh, even the law. I didn't. It didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong. I've like my job at the moment is uh, an illustrator and. Just ever since I was a kid, I used to take a sketchbook with me, uh, walk the you know the the paths around my home, and if uh, a, a fallen oak tree happened to be twenty yards off the path, and if the perspective of it was much better from you know the stump just in front of it rather than behind the barbed wire. I'd I'd just go to draw it and um and I guess incrementally as as uh, as you're met with uh you know this kind of anything between outrage to to sheer uh, aggression of of the representatives of the landowner you start to think it's all a little incongruous to what I'm actually doing so what is that about and where where does their anger come from and and am I actually doing anything wrong you know as much as anything I wanted to see you know, like, how bad is this? Well, that's a good question. How bad is this? In the English context, because that's kind of what we're talking about here, how is trespass defined and how has it been defined over time? Well, in England, it's defined under the law of tort, which constitutes damage to the personhood of, uh, you know, of the landowner. So English law fails to recognise any issues such as context or the scale of uh, the property that you're trespassing in, and basically lumps everything together as if it is just a home invasion. Uh, Whereas just over the border in Scotland, or in Norway, or Sweden, or Estonia, like, it's defined in a completely different way that the public have rights of access just so long as they're not causing any damage uh, to the property. In England, however, just you being there is literally defined as damage. Um, which is something they call in legal circles a legal fiction, but more commonly is known it's just rubbish. So so when you started digging into this, the, the background of this story, the history of it really, what kind of story did you uncover? Um, one of dispossession of the working class uh, people of England, one of exploitation of the land. You know, one of the, they're called perquisites, but they're basically the perks, what the sort of stuff you get uh, on top of owning the land is defined in Latin in the, the legal term as jus abutendi, the right to destroy. It's an untold story of English history. It's, uh, you know, the, the story of English history is about the lords and the aristocrats that uh, owned our land. Uh, but never does anyone tell you exactly where they got that land or, or the kind of methods they used to do it. Highclere Castle is a very good example where Downton Abbey, the uh, popular uh, TV show, is filmed. To own the 6,000 acres of land, the the lord of the time uh, literally dispossessed the village of Highclere that was there in the first place. Um, and, And that story is told all over England. There's not an inch of land in England that hasn't uh, at some point been contested. Not from the commoners, who were the people that used uh, the land, uh, you know, for winter fuel or to, to to graze their animals, they never owned the place. But before William the Conqueror, they had the right to use it because it was recognised that their lives depended on being able to, you know, autonomous, self-subsistent. You could be poor uh, in, in those days, but you, you didn't have to be destitute because you were able to rely upon your access rights to the land to, to, to gain the bare necessities. 
So what are some of the milestones in that story, the story of how England essentially became privatised? Well, William the Conqueror, number one, like uh, every land rights activist seems to have a real bee in their bonnet about (laughs) this king that came over uh, a thousand years ago. What he did was uh, completely rejig our relationship to the land, like uh, the word forest. Uh, is uh, a a word that comes from the Latin forest, meaning outside of. Uh, And it's got nothing to do with trees as we kind of associate it with it now. What it really means is that it it was a new designation brought in by William the Conqueror that meant it was outside of common law. So common law allowed people, as I said, to, you know, collect their wood or to feed their animals. And uh, under heavy regulations of fellow commoners, you know, the whole premise of common land is that you don't own it, you're you're borrowing it off your grandchildren. Sustainability was uh, not a word so much then, but definitely part of the ethic. uh, And it's certainly no new thing. So William the Conqueror came over and just enclosed about a fifth of England and said, this is outside of common law. Anyone that lives within these fences will be evicted. And anyone that lives on the outside and uses them uh, automatically has their rights taken away. Because he just wanted uh, these areas to be breeding grounds for deer, which was basically the focus of his recreational activity. Him and his barons liked to go hunting. Statute of Merton in uh, the 14th century, you know, it kind of nationalised uh, enclosure and, and like took it from, uh, basically formalised it into something that barons or nobles could use as a law. Uh, they could quote this law to be able to go and enclose land. Then the Tudor period saw uh, land ownership itself become a, a kind of profession. It was a way of making money. And all of the sort of subsidiary professions around it, um, you know, the, the, the lawyers and the surveyors and all of that. Um, and then the Georgian era was by far my favourite era of enclosure um that's really when we saw the rivers through industrialization uh you know the rivers being taken out of bounds for the public simply because the flow the current of the river was the power that drove the the initial steps of the industrial revolution so weirs were put in uh you know canals uh, like rivers were canalized and the public's lo- lost their right to uh, to swim or to fish or to experience the rivers uh, from that period on, basically. And and there's kind of a myth that uh, enclosure is a thing of the past, but it, it's happening today in cities. We see privately owned public spaces, but we also see it even just most recently in lockdown, people blocking up rights of way. Uh, you know, one of the most common forms of enclosure is to obliterate the natural resource altogether. You know, you're you're enclosed from using it because it doesn't exist anymore. But the issue here is that so much of that has already happened that we've forgotten even, you know, the mental health, the physical health benefits of, say, swimming in particular. So we don't go to the rivers because we've forgotten them as a resource. They've been fenced off for decades, if not centuries. And that's the real, you know, that that's the real wall that blocks us uh, from accessing nature is long before we've ever got to the barbed wire that physically restricts us from nature. It's just we've forgotten it as an option. So looking backwards, what are some of the the biggest battles over some of these issues that you've seen through history, the contests over land possession and trespass? Well, actually, it's it's when uh, you, you can sort of tell that enclosure uh, finally 
worked when protest in effect dropped its reference to land rights towards the end of the Georgian era. Before then, anything from the Peasants' Revolt, uh, the Midlands' Revolt, the Pilgrimage of Grace, protests that weren't ostensibly about land rights and access to land and enclosure actually all had as part of their criteria for change uh, better access to the land or like a uh, reversing of enclosure. But by time the Industrial Revolution took hold, it's almost like the focus of protest suddenly had to change from uh, the fundamental right that we have to self-subsistence and autonomy. All of a sudden that was thrown out of the window and we all became wage slaves. So now we start arguing about uh, how much uh, we get paid and how unfair it is that we have to work through the weekends. You, you have to start campaigning for, you know, sick pay and uh, welfare state protection kind of thing. So around the Georgian era uh, was the kind of caesura where all protest uh, in effect gave up trying to tell the establishment that uh, access to the land was our access to our sort of autonomous ability to uh, to survive and then yeah and then unfortunately it changed but but big examples greenham common uh, was all about uh, th- the way it played out ostensibly it was about nuclear war uh, you know there were warheads that were brought by reagan into um england which turned newbury which is the town i grew up next to as kind of like number 1 on the hit list for the kremlin all of a sudden but that obviously turned into when men uh, were banned uh, from the camp, that turned into uh, a, a protest that was sort of promoting feminist values. Uh, but then the way the council tried to evict them, the, the argument turned very quickly to land rights. And Michael Heseltine was uh, like happily for a feminist protest was uh, deemed to be acting ultra vires is the legal term like essentially like literally translated as beyond his manhood uh, he was overstepping his uh, rights of power uh, to evict these people because they were on common land and that is what common land uh, used to mean you, you you had rights to be there and so you couldn't be evicted no matter how much of a thorn in the side you were to the military and to the you know to the government at the time still to come on the history extra podcast well i, f- I think that if you've done your research if you've looked up on historic england or you've uh, you know read the book about the area kind of thing there's not a, a scrap of land in england that isn't like rooted in uh, history You mentioned at the start of the conversation um, the Kinder Scout trespass, and that's the the anecdote really that you open the book with. Why was that you know so important that you wanted to open the book with it, and and did it have a legacy or was it a, a flash in the pan really? Uh, both is the answer. Like twenty fourth of April, nineteen thirty two. There's something about the legacy of Kinder Trespass that has um, become sepia toned. It's got this sort of patina of respectability on it now, which is certainly very useful for the modern day land rights campaigner. The kind of people that were saying these kids or the kind of newspapers and establishments uh, who were saying that these these kids are commie hooligans they've they've set back the advance of land rights by you know 10 20 years they don't know what they're doing they're ignorant 
all of those people now celebrate the kinder trespass kind of because it's long enough ago to go oh isn't it wonderful but of course when fracking protesters up in preston uh do exactly the same thing they're vilified or when xr take to the streets they're called uncooperative crusties the the kinder trespass itself was 400 kids going for a walk uh, uh, along one of the very, very rare paths of or, or legal rights of way that they had up in Bleaklow at the time. Uh, they were sick of basically every every weekend, hundreds, thousands of people would uh, come to Bleaklow just to catch a breath of fresh air because this was, you know, the area surrounded by some of the most industrialised uh, cities at the time in the north. There was like something like two miles of footpath that they could uh, that they were legally allowed to, and yet all of this other land that was reserved for uh, grouse shooting. In the end, they just strayed about four hundred yards off the path. Six of them were convicted and put in prison uh, for a breach of the peace. Uh, there was a sort of brief flurry of violence when the gamekeepers started to uh, fight with uh, some of the kids. And that was it. The year after, those numbers had multiplied by tenfold. You know, people like in 1890, the Winter Hill Trespass was 10,000 people. There is something about the Kinder Trespass that has sort of caught the imagination of people. The danger of that, of course, is that uh, people tend to, um, it's a Gustav Mahler quote uh, about folk music, actually, but it's, uh, you know, folk music is tending the flame, not worshipping the ashes. Uh, and certainly there, there is an, a, a sort of older socialist uh, mindset that kind of venerates the kinder trespass rather than uh, kind of repeating it. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the most notable figures um, in the fight for common land or public rights to land. Well, it's it's a good question. Um, there, there are certainly names that uh, history has recorded. Captain Pouch is a almost legendary figure from the Midlands Revolt in 1607. He he was sort of an itinerant uh, tinker, much like Paul Revere, who kind of alerted uh, the, the the local Americans to uh, you know the the English invasion. Simply, he had just an itinerant uh, knowledge of the local communities and he'd won their respect. So he was able to go and uh, rally the troops for a, a revolt that involved thousands of people across various towns in the Midlands, uprising against enclosure, which was particularly savage in the early 1600s around Northampton and, and that kind of area. But really the ones that interest me, there was a King John of the, the they were called, these riots in the 1700s were called uh, the Black Riots because um, the people that did them, they basically like a uh, day that like modern Robin Hood style but slightly less swashbuckling and a little more violent went into the deer parks that they'd only recently been excluded from and just basically shot all the deer uh didn't take them home they just it, it was a brutal uh message of revenge almost like just outrage but they sort of branched out into uh, the people that were unfairly accused or that were on their way to the gallows. They would rescue them and, you know, and, and sort of threaten the magistrates if they considered that actually justice wasn't being done here. But all of these threats and all of these uh, acts were done under the name King John. And King John
John was a fictitious character that was kind of the kind of personification of the uprising. Similarly, I think um, I think it was Susan that the Greenham women signed all of their letters to the council. They said, you know, uh, kind regards or, you know, please stop removing our uh, standpipe for our water and our hygiene. Kind regards, Susan. And what I love about this is that, you know, conventional history wants to uh, put the either the blame or the accolade onto, you know, this the, this kind of like pinnacle of a hierarchy. There's always a leader. There's always uh, uh, someone with a grand master plan who has the charisma of Jesus uh, to sort of gather people together. And, and, and the rest of, you know, the thousands of people involved with it are kind of just sheep to the herd. With land rights, it's a commoners movement. Every movement has uh, thousands of people that are doing all of the work. Uh, and yet, understandably, uh, the narrative or the media or the historical account of it needs to basically, you know, either vilify or turn into a hero, uh, one or two people kind of thing. So I like, in short, I, I like the, uh, I like Susan and King John because they kind of... They're everybody. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Something else that I wanted to ask you about that you look at in the book is is the idea of um, vagrancy, attitudes towards people moving through land without a fixed abode. How how have feelings about that changed over time? Because it's always been quite a, a potent issue, hasn't it? No, it completely has. Uh, vagrancy, you know, back back in the day, the sort of 1100s, when vagrancy acts started uh, to be brought in by the various kings, vagrancy was autonomy. If, you know, your, your local boss or your landowner wasn't paying you what you thought was just dessert for the, for the labour that you put in, uh, you had the right to just go and look for work elsewhere. And certainly after the, after the plague, when about a third of the English workforce were, were just dead, there was su- suddenly the power uh, swung from the employers, uh, from the landowners, to the labourers. Uh, they were able to pick and choose where they, where they went. So there was a whole new spate of vagrancy acts that was just banning people from moving. And then you get to, you know, who Henry VIII uh, mislabeled as the Egyptians, which has become shortened to gypsies. They were actually from uh, Rajasthan, uh, nomadic people from Rajasthan, uh, which in itself tells you a lot about state projection and how little uh, investigation was done into the culture and the, the mindset of the people. I got fascinated with it researching in the book. Then it starts to get into something a bit more psychological, a bit more subconscious, this fear of motion as opposed to the the sort of comfortable acceptance of um, rootedness. Crucially, like many of the acts, allowed people not to be hanged or not to have ears bored through or holes bored through their ears uh, or put in the stocks or have V for vagabond branded on their chest. If crucially, they just gave up their traveling lifestyle. Vagrancy acts. Uh, there's a vagrancy act that was uh, brought in in the Georgian era that's still in place today, and it basically allows people to be arrested for taking food from bins or uh, rough sleeping. But there is a prejudice and a deep, deep set fear of people who wander because fundamentally they can't be controlled. What are some of the most magical places that you were 
able to visit that had a real kind of sense of history to them when you were working on the book? Well, I, I think that if you've done your research, if you've looked up on historic England or you've, uh, you know, read the book about the area kind of thing, there's not a, a scrap of land in England that isn't like rooted in uh, history, social history, uh, ecological history, geologic, you know, they're, they're, when, when we say land, we're actually incorporating so many different kind of notions with it. Uh, we don't just mean the topography or the flora and the fauna. Uh, we mean the history of it. And so for me, a, a large part of all of that was the folk legends that uh, kind of surrounded the place. And for that reason, I'd have to say uh, home park outside uh, Windsor Castle. Basically, uh, up until 1847, uh, it was a public park, 400 acres. There was a pub in it, Frogmore Pub, Frogmore Inn, sorry. And then because uh, Prince Albert uh, decided he wanted to go bathing in the nude in the Thames, they decided to wall it off. And so that was it's an example of a park that uh, was kind of enclosed as per normal. No big deal. Uh, but the thing is, there's a tree in it that is kind of venerated in Shakespeare's um, The Merry Wives of Windsor uh, that is attached to a very local legend of a, a guy called, or a, a sort of po a gamekeeper turned poacher called Hearn the Hunter, uh, who wears, uh, you know, horns upon his head. And it's kind of this local Berkshire iteration of uh, that old horned god, that kind of Bacchus or Kernanos kind of thing. And I I love the story. The story is about wildness over uh, trimmed lawns. It's about uh, the profusion uh, uh, and kind of, you know, sexuality almost of nature, that kind of spring uh, bursting forth uh, over the kind of sterile sort of authoritarianism of a kind of superstructure such as Windsor Castle over the top of it. But key to this whole story is that it's um it's now a criminal act uh punishable with a year in prison uh to even you know by the laws of trespass to even put place your finger upon that ground uh and so on my kayak many times like uh, it, it basically borders the thames river and it's probably about 500 yards down a tree-lined avenue that is where this tree that commemorates her and the hunter is and for the last chapter of the book it's kind of like the Italian job. Do I, don't I go uh, to visit the tree? I understand it's all a bit woo-wah, this sort of believing in or, or just having an enthusiasm for those old kind of pagan myths. Uh, but for me, they are the kind of alternative commoners story of relating to the land. Uh, they're the, the commoners version of uh, the landowner's yield book, you know, how much the land is worth, what, you know, how much uh, corn or uh, livestock you were able to, you know, get, get product, profit on. These are the stories that talk about our uh, kind of spectral uh, kind of spiritual pheno phenomenological, if that's even the right way of saying it, experience of the land that has almost entirely been obliterated with enclosure and, and the acceptance of uh, private property over public rights of access kind of thing. So I could bang on. We'll do another uh, podcast about Hearn the Hunter because he's just cool. <laughs> yeah. It's an incredible, surreal story, isn't it? So my final question, I, I feel like, has been running throughout this whole conversation, but it's just about how all these 
centuries of history take us to the place we're at today? Where can we see the, the legacy of all this contested history in England today? In our acceptance of it, I think, if you if you went and put up uh, razor wire around the lakes in Finland right now, there would be a national outcry. If, uh, if, if you told uh, Scottish wild swimmers that they were no longer allowed in 97% of the rivers, which is the statistic for England, there would be, again, outrage because the people that are connected to nature know just how valuable it is to their mental health and their physical health. But this uh, is a story of kind of incremental acceptance. It's like the frog boiling in the pan kind of thing. Like, a, you know, they've been turning the heat up on our exclusion from nature for a thousand years to the point where we just can't feel it. The NH NHS Forest estimates uh, last year we spent £8.2 billion pounds on the repercussions, medicating, trying to solve uh, the repercussions of our sedentary lifestyles. And the thing is, while swimming, you don't even need swimming trunks. Like there's, like it's cheap. It's and and, and it brings so much uh, to people. So we need to start looking at access to land, not as some kind of socialist chop off the aristocrat's head and bung it on a stick kind of uh, victory. We need to look at it as uh, the privatization of healthcare. But let's give people the right to self-medicate in a way uh, by, um, you know, controlling obesity or chronic pulmonary heart disease or anxiety or depression or uh, PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress. Like these are things that science has proven their symptoms can be alleviated through regular access to nature. The problem is at the moment with only 8% of England being available for a right to roam, like those places are so uh, far away from the general population uh, that they're basically relegated uh, or nature, the experience of nature is relegated to a kind of lifestyle holiday Instagram post for those that can afford it. Um, and we could just be s such a healthier nation if we were just allowed uh, to swim in the rivers that are near us. That was Nick Hayes. The Book of Trespass, Crossing the Lines That Divide Us, is out in paperback now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.